Welcome to Next Left. This is John Nichols of The Nation magazine. Jackson, Mississippi Mayor Shokwe Antar Lumumba has a vision that distinguishes him from most elected officials in the United States, even from most progressive elected officials. He is not afraid of the word radical. In fact, he relishes discussions about what it means to go to the root of challenging issues, to identify the sources of injustice, and to address them. Mary Lumumba comes from an activist family. His father, Shokwe Lumumba, was a legendary figure in Jackson and nationally, a brilliant lawyer and organizer with the Republic of New Africa and other groups on behalf of communities that have been let down by both major parties. The senior Lumumba warned against imagining that answers would come from distant political figures. He believed in building from the grassroots up. Eventually, he was elected mayor of Jackson in 2013, a victory that drew national attention because of what it said about the opening up of American politics, especially in the South. He was described as America's most revolutionary mayor. When he died less than a year after taking office, his son ran in the special election to replace him and lost. That defeat did not dissuade Shokwe Antar Lumumba. He kept speaking up, organizing, and campaigning. In 2017, running on a people's platform, an agenda of social justice, of economic democracy, he won the mayoralty by a landslide, taking 94% of the general election vote. He promised to make Jackson the most radical city on the planet. As mayor, He has stood up to Donald Trump and he has taken on national issues. But his primary focus has been on the grassroots work of delivering services, people-powered budgeting, and community empowerment. Shokwe Antar Lumumba, the mayor of Jackson, Mississippi, is our guest this week on Next Left. Mary Lumumba, thank you so much for joining us on Next Left. Thank you, John. It's, it's a pleasure to speak with you and a pleasure to be heard by your listening audience. I appreciate that. You ran for mayor of Jackson, Mississippi, on a promise to make Jackson the most radical city on the planet. What did you mean by that? Uh, well, obviously, John, that's a, a pretty ambitious goal. But what that comes from is what was initially a critique of myself. uh, And prior to my running for office, it was a critique of my father. Uh, And the suggestion was made that quite possibly we were too radical in order to bring uh, the city together, in order to see the progress that was needed. And so uh, I took it upon myself to look up the word radical. uh, And I soon learned that a radical is a person who seeks change. And if we look into communities that resemble Jackson, Mississippi, if we look into communities across this country and the world and we recognize a need for change, it is apparent to me that we need to be as radical as the circumstances dictate we should be. Here in Mississippi, those individuals that we have the most reverence for, whether it's Ida B. Wells, Fannie Lou Hamer, or Megar Evers, nationally, if we look at the work of Martin Luther King or Malcolm X, uh, and for those that look at the work of Jesus Christ, we find that they were all radicals. And so I see it as a term of endearment. And then, you know, when we look at the things that people are suffering from, I think that there's a hard or difficult case to be made that people are suffering from cycles of humiliation, from high poverty, from high crime, from poor performing schools because someone fought too hard for them, because someone was too radical on their behalf. 
And so, uh, you know, that's something that we seek to become, understanding that, that that is an ongoing effort. But we feel that it is imperative that Jackson not only be able to solve its problems, but that we be an example for the rest of, of the world. And the word radical also, it speaks to going to the root of the problem, that it isn't just about, uh, you know, trying to change things, but it's also trying to figure out what the core challenge is. And it strikes me that for you, that's that's always been a mission to kind of look beyond just the surface challenges to try and get to the, the heart of it. Absolutely. I think that, that we often focus in on the symptoms of our problems uh, as opposed to, as you as you suggest, the root cause. You know, an analogy that my father often used and, and you know, it's it's more a structural critique than it is an individual critique. But he, you know, he, he talked about how people were lured into a place of complacency upon the election of, of uh, Barack Obama. And he said that, you know, sometimes we have to look at the presidency in the same manner as we look at the plantation. He said on the plantation, you always had an overseer. He said over time, sometimes the overseer was white, sometimes the overseer was black. Uh, but no matter whether the overseer was white or black, maybe if he was black, he didn't beat you quite as bad. Uh, but no matter whether he was white or black, you were still on a plantation. You were no more free. And so we need to look at the structure of oppression. We need to look at multinational corporations and how they exploit people globally. As we we come out of the, the wake of the ice raids that took place in Mississippi, we need to look at the global pressures that lead people into these cycles of humiliation. And You've referenced your father quite a a couple times already, and your father was a remarkable figure in American thought and in politics, ultimately. He was a, certainly a radical activist for many years, and somewhat remarkably, I would argue, he ended up as the mayor mm-hmm. of Jackson, elected after having served on the city council. He did not serve for a long time because he passed on. But uh, tell us about your father and and, uh, some of his work. Well, I would, you know, like to mention, John, that I had the benefit of of two parents who were uh, both activists. And I had the unique experience of living in the house with my hero. You know, I saw my parents sacrifice in so many ways, uh, the things that may have garnered media attention and the things that they did that were much more quiet efforts. But I saw a constant commitment from them to work towards the aim of self-determined communities. Uh, Prior to running for office, uh, I saw a man who worked with basketball organizations, assuring that out of nearly 800 boys, that 98 percent of them uh, were able to go to to college, explore opportunities that, that did not they didn't appear to be on a trajectory for that. I watched him work with the Malcolm X grassroots movement where he raised us to be a part of different community efforts. In fact, the fact that we moved to Mississippi uh, was a a larger sacrifice. We moved to Mississippi not because we had any family members here. Uh, My grandparents weren't from Mississippi. I have no aunts, uncles, or cousins here. Uh, But my father was doing work in the 70s in Mississippi towards building self-determined communities. And in the midst of that work, he had the question as to whether he could be both attorney and activist. He later left to go back home to Michigan to pursue his law degree. And uh, after reading the autobiography of Malcolm X, he decided he wanted to be the type of attorney that Malcolm would have been. 
And so he had uh, different legal pursuits and different battles that he he won in Michigan uh, later took on a big case in New York. And, and after that was done, my parents decided that they wanted to move to the South. And my dad said, we needed to go to Mississippi because we had unfinished business there. And so they literally sacrificed and gave their most precious resource. And that was their children. They gave us a sense of family. They gave us a, a sense of community. And they gave us the principle of viewing the community as a family. And, and tell me a bit about your mother as well. Uh, my mother, uh, originally from D.C., she was uh, in big part a cultural activist, uh, but she also was engaged in impressing upon my father in areas that he was uh, not yet mature about how important the family structure was in, in the building of community. She, you know, uh, taught him that we can't be about building community if we don't first understand that the central processing unit of community is family. And so she engaged with him. She supported and pushed him in many of the initiatives that he was a part of. Uh, it was her who actually was more hands-on in developing the relationships in Jackson. I think that people had a sense of my father as a strong advocate, but but didn't really know him on a personal level. And it was my mother who was the one to create those relationships that eventually enabled him to one day pursue office as city councilman and then later uh, being mayor. And so uh, it was a beautiful, beautiful relationship that I benefited from, obviously. But they worked as as a, a an amazing team uh, in what they were able to provide to us as a family and, and their contributions to our community at large. And in, in writing about you over the years and your family over the years, I've been struck by a sense of mission, maybe working in different areas, but but this this desire to keep carrying forward in, in a variety of struggles. And you were confronted with that uh, at the time of your father's passing because there was a special election mm-hmm. to fill the mayor's job and you ran, but you did not win. And you didn't walk away from it. You stuck around and came back and made another try. Tell us about that. Well, I, I share with people quite frequently that losing that election is is one of the things that I'm I'm most grateful for. You know, it gave me an opportunity to further appreciate the challenges that Jackson is going through, to further appreciate the challenges that I as an individual was going through um, in, in so many critical moments of my life. Not only uh, had my father passed and I tried to take on running for office, uh, my wife had just given birth to our first child. And so it was just a world of change going on around me. Uh, and so that was that was helpful to me. Uh, and then I also saw that uh, it was a moment to to prove sincerity. You know, often if we run for office and we don't get it, uh, sometimes you know we might want to depart into the shadows and 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 hide from what some feel is failure. And I, I honestly didn't see it as failure. I, I saw people come together. Uh, it was a very close election. Uh, people engaged, and I thought we had a responsibility to remain engaged. And so uh, we stayed abreast of many issues that the city was going through. Uh, we developed uh, institutions that that helped promote things that were of great concern to the community. Uh, we kept moving with the People's Assembly, which is an opportunity for people to be heard on in critical issues and and allowed for an information exchange. We developed the Coalition of Economic Justice that looked at 
economic issues that that faced the the uh, city, and certain legislative measures that we felt had great impact of where the city was headed. And so all of those things and, and all of the people that have historically worked in the city that I've, I've had the great benefit of continuing to work with many of the people, the comrades that my dad worked with, has all been helpful to allow us to continue in this work. And you came back and ran again in 2017? Yeah. You know, as I said, I, I didn't see the first campaign as, as a, a loss, as it was a lesson. And so I thought it was important that we take that lesson and, and we, you know, I, I don't see my candidacy as as a solitary ambition or, or, or exclusive ambition. I see it as as a movement of our of our people. And so I thought we needed to learn from that and, and better understand. And, and when people would ask me, quite honestly, whether I was running again, I would say, you know, uh, if it's necessary. So I thought that the work, regardless of whether I ran for office again, was absolutely necessary. And so we were sincere in that. But we're, we're grateful that uh, people made a very strong statement as to the direction that they wanted to go in. Uh, as people were challenging our campaign as being too radical, people said, well, we, we embrace that. Once explain what radical meant, once explaining uh, the direction that we wanted to go into, I think people were excited about that and have continued to be be excited about that. Well, let's talk about governing a little bit. You did come into the, the mayor's job. And one of the things that I think distinguishes you from a lot of mayors around the country is the commitment that you have to popular engagement with governance. The idea that people in the neighborhoods, people throughout the city really need to be a part of it. It's not something that happens to them. It's something that they help to shape. Tell me about some of the stuff you've done. Well, I think it's a, it's a demonstration of true democracy. Three minutes on a microphone does not make community engagement. And so we believe that in the sincerity of this process, that we not only provide information to people, but but we have to have a posture of continuing to learn from our community. The community is closest to the solutions. When you're dealing with issues of crime, uh, when you're dealing with issues of, of opportunity and quality of life, they, like I said, they're closest to the solutions and they understand what they're experiencing. Uh, you know, I share that, that, you know, every citizen may or may not be an expert in education, economic development, public safety, or, or infrastructure, but they're all experts in their condition. They all know what has made life difficult. They all know what they've enjoyed over time, and so I think that their voices are important. Coincidentally, today we just passed the budget for this next upcoming fiscal year, and what we embraced and, and what we have moved towards is a participatory budgeting model, uh, basically understanding that your budget as a city is a moral document. It speaks to the values that you have as a community. Uh, and if it will do so, then it is inconceivable if we really consider what that means. It is inconceivable that you wouldn't hear what the community has to say. So we, we execute this by people's assemblies, which are quarterly. We raise important issues that are taking place. And it is not owned by the administration. The People's Assembly is an independent body, and it is necessitated that it be so, but the administration is obviously supportive of it. But it needs to be that way because you can't assure who's always in office. We need to make certain that the community has voice, that the community has power to raise questions, that the community has an ability to hold us accountable in leadership. 
We'll be back after these messages. Join me on the nation cruise to the Western Caribbean this December 8th through the 15th. Sailing from Fort Lauderdale, Florida, with ports of call in the Bahamas, Jamaica, Grand Cayman, and Mexico. I'll be joined by Ijin Poo, Joan Walsh, Ben Jealous, Zephyr Teachout, and many other progressive thinkers, leaders, and heroes. Together, we'll explore our turbulent political landscape and debate what can be done about challenges facing the United States and the world. We'll do it all amid the natural beauty of the Western Caribbean. This trip will sell out fast. Secure your spot at www.nationcruise.com. I hope to see you on board. Welcome back to Next Left. I'm speaking with Jackson, Mississippi Mayor Shokwe Antar Lamumba. And you have said a, an interesting thing about, about governing, that filling potholes is a part of radical change. And infrastructure is a part of this. And I think there's, there's often a lot of folks who think, oh, yeah, there's, there's all these big ideas and all these you know, bold things you want to do. But you've placed a real emphasis on, on the core delivery of services because of the impact that has on people's lives. Absolutely. So, so there, there are a few things that I can say about that, John. One, one is biblically, it is stated that if you're faithful over the little things, your territory will be enlarged. And so while potholes may not be the global issue that changes conditions for everybody, uh, I think that it is important that we focus on those things that, that people are concerned with. Uh, but as we connect to those larger issues, you know, I, I can start by telling you that as you're knocking on doors and you're meeting people in their community and you're you're talking to them over issues, you know, I have a propensity to talk to some of the larger things in life because of my background, because of the work of my parents. I can talk about discrimination, exploitation. I can talk about all of these things that we we commonly talk about on a much more macro scale. But you're invariably confronted by a brother or sister who says, yeah, you know, that's nice, young brother, but uh, how are you going to fix that pothole in the middle of my street? And for some people, that may seem very minuscule in the grand scheme of things. But what I share with people is that, you know, we have to be able to bridge pothole to pothole and community to community. So people in Jackson, Mississippi, understand that there's a nexus between them and a community in Gary, Indiana, Chicago, Illinois, New Orleans, Louisiana. Uh, that looks like theirs and suffers from the same infrastructure problems that they do. And then ultimately what we learn is that your problem was never simply just a pothole. Your problem is that you don't control the decision-making process that leads to a pothole being fixed. Your problem is that you don't control the curriculum that educates your children. Your problem is that you have no say-so in the economic opportunities that are advanced in your community. Your problem is a fundamental one. Your problem is one of self-determination, that you don't control the conditions which dictate your life, which lead to the quality of life that you want to enjoy. And from that, we start embracing the idea of people becoming uh, more engaged in the political process. From that, we build a cadre of people that go from merely being governed to wanting to be governor. And when you talk about wanting to be governor, one of the things that you've placed a lot of emphasis on over the years, and, and your father did as well, was the idea of cooperative ownership or cooperative engagement with making things happen. This idea of not waiting for a multinational corporation to show up and open up a 
a factory or whatever, but people actually creating things economically from the ground up. Absolutely. And, you know, let, let me say this. I make it clear that we want to be and we are a business friendly community, but we want that to be a reciprocal relationship. We've seen uh, businesses come to Jackson. We've seen them uh, become successful and do well, but we've also seen them divest in our community and, and pick up their their bags and, and leave for greener pastures, uh, so to speak, in their mind. And what we find is that they were never invested back in us. And so it has to be that reciprocal relationship where we want you to be successful, but we want you to sow back into our community. And so that's why cooperative enterprise is so important. Now, I'm in a city which is 85% African-American. And so there's a lot of discussion about black business, and that is important. I tell people if 85% of your population is left-handed, then you need some left-handed jobs, right? But even more important than the support of black business uh, is the support of those community institutions, which the mission of which is to invest back in the community that gave birth to it. A black business is like any other business. Once it exploits a, a market, then it may go to another market that it thinks that it can take uh, better advantage of. And so when we're able to build community institutions, worker-owned cooperatives where people can not only determine what their labor will be, but they get to have some say-so in what the fruits of their labor will be, then it serves to make communities whole in so many ways. It fills voids. It provides jobs. And then it creates a point of leverage that some of the divestment or redlining that has taken place no longer is safe. Jackson is three times the size of the next largest city in the state of Mississippi. And sometimes things are built on the periphery of Jackson with the expectation that people of Jackson will simply come. Well, once you start showing that you're willing to fill these gaps on your own, then it becomes dangerous not to invest in Jackson. And you've talked about the idea of a dignity economy. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. Well, it, it recognizes that people are often or communities are often suffering from what we see as cycles of humiliation. When you have poor performing schools, high poverty, blight, failing infrastructure, those are communities that are going through a sense of humiliation. And so we want to emphasize the inherent dignity of everyone, building a city, building a community where we are very honest and straightforward about being against gentrification as we build, as we remove blight, being intentional in that regard, seeing gentrification as a, a war against the people. Instead of moving people away, we want to lift people up. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't want to invite people of goodwill and sincerity to live with us. But as we build these opportunities, as we talk about the cooperative idea these are ways that we can be a part of this economy, could have thriving institutions, and at the same time be focused on whole persons, looking at other metrics of successful economies. Often we're looking at just uh, GDP when we say that an economy is successful. The reality is that we need to look at some other social development goals. What is the environment like? How are we building a sustainable environment a sustainable economy, an economy that looks at the education of our children, that looks at so many of these factors that really should be evaluated to truly establish success or failure of economies. And you have signaled that 
you, well, you certainly want to work as well as you can with state officials and with national officials, that you understand that a lot of the help is going to come from people organizing on the ground at home. Uh, You had a, a statement after President Trump was elected, and you said, people asked me, how did I feel after Donald Trump was elected? I said, the Wednesday after Donald Trump was elected, I woke up in Mississippi. Mm-hmm. What did you mean by that? Well, it's just a recognition that, you know, uh, now that Donald Trump is president, uh, before when Barack Obama was president, Mississippi has always been at the bottom. That that if you were poor before Donald Trump, you're likely still poor since Donald Trump. Uh, if you were poor before Barack Obama or uh, George W. Bush or Bill Clinton before him, then you were poor after. And, and, and so... Uh, Mississippi is a place that has not experienced great booms or busts, uh, that that it really, in in all honesty, has mattered very little whether you consider yourself Democrat or Republican. You've been suffering under the same conditions in this state. And so there hasn't been a great deal of focus on the progress of Mississippi, both internally or externally. And so I think that that is a unifying point for all of us. Uh, that that it is apparent that what we do collectively will change the order of the day for Mississippi, and that the Calvary isn't necessarily coming. And so uh, that is that is a statement that that really puts that into perspective. And even if we go on a historic standpoint, in in terms of things that we often are unable to identify, less obvious victims of oppression, Mississippi has that history. Uh, if we we fast forward to the recent critique or analysis that I gave of the ice raids and connected it to the flood that took place in in the Mississippi Delta, where they were holding workers, you know, plantation workers in concentration camps and forcing them to maintain the levees, what they found is a great deal of dissatisfaction not only around the people who are being exploited from the, that that work but the people who are missing opportunities because the exploitation exists in the first place. And so uh, I think Mississippi is a prime example of how allowing oppression to take place anywhere is a threat to our success everywhere. You know, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, taking away from, from Martin's statement. A threat to justice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And so Mississippi is a prime example of that. When you talk to folks uh, locally, the state level, nationally, what do you tell them to look at? What's your What's your counsel if they really want to get to the heart of the matter? Well, I, I will say that that is probably the toughest question that you asked me uh, because there are a number of things that I think we have to look at. I think we have to look at the structure of control, uh, the the ability for people to be a part of the process of governance. But I think economics ties into so many of the decisions that we make. And, you know, uh, poverty is the worst form of violence that you can inflict upon anyone. And when we look at so many of these symptoms, I, that, that's why I say, we, you know, as you, you suggest, we got to get to the root of the problem. When we look at the issue of criminal justice reform, uh, while we recognize how it takes away from families, how it steals the liberty of people, we often fail to connect the economic implications of that and how we have to get away from our overindulgence of being tied to the economic advantages of crime. We teach our children that crime doesn't pay. 
But the reality is crime pays very well. It pays the lawyers, such as myself, right? It pays the judges. It pays the police, the law enforcement. We have more in law enforcement today than we've ever had. We have our city police and our county police and our state police and our federal police and our secret police and our secret police who watch the secret police. We have prison guards and all of the companies that that contract with the prisons. And all of that, all of that requires or necessitates an over-incarceration of our society. It creates tensions in communities. It creates areas of communities feeling targeted, like the black community. And, and all of these are social ills that we are overly invested in. And so if we want to have serious conversations about challenges such as this, then we have to recognize that it, it's more than just a symptom of what we see where people are losing their liberty. It's something that we have to replace as an economy, that, that if crime stopped tomorrow, that our economy would fail as a country today. So we have to find other sources for which we will support ourselves. Let's circle around to Jackson itself. You have spent an awful lot of your life in, in Jackson, although educated in other places and, and uh, certainly traveled a good deal. Jackson is a, a historic American city that is actually not as big as a lot of the cities that we know. Tell us a little bit about the culture of Jackson. The, I guess, for lack of a better term, what makes you love it? Well, uh, I, I tell people that Jackson is a city which is pregnant with possibilities. And the greatest resource we have in our city are our citizens. Uh, there are people who have a progressive mindset that, that they are aware of their challenges and, and the beauty and, and everything combined, both locally and internationally. And they carry a more progressive uh, lens. And so I, I love the personalities in Jackson, uh, the city that you will find to be very hospitable. I love Jackson because, as I share it with you, I shared that we moved to Jackson not because we had family members here, not because I had a grandmother or aunts and uncles, but because there was work to be done. But out of that is a community that has become my family. I've literally spent more time with my neighbors than I have some of my aunts and uncles who live in Detroit. Uh, I've literally had this community that has been built around me that has become my family. And so my love for Jackson is both personal and it's it's shaped by that that greater purpose that brought me here to begin with. And it's a city where people are willing to make necessary sacrifices. You know, I, I love people's understanding of, of what they're dealing with and their ability to think beyond themselves and, and incorporate an idea of shared sacrifice in this community. What's the best music in Jackson? Uh, well, we have our, our Southern Soul, which, you know, some people is, is kind of a derivative of, of the blues. Uh, in fact, we know that New Orleans has gotten credit for jazz and, and Memphis has gotten credit for the blues. But the reality is all of it got its root here in Mississippi. And, and so there are very gifted people here in this city and throughout this state, for that matter. Those are the words of a, of a mayor who really does love his city and who's, who's going to take credit for everything. Uh, yep, yep. <laughs> every, every good thing. <laughs> <laughs> mayor, mayor Lamumba, thanks so much for joining us uh, on Next Left. You've been a, a, just a wonderful and insightful commentator. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. The pleasure is mine. Thank you so much. Thank you.
Join us next week as we take the next left with Congressmember Catherine Clark, representing the 5th District of Massachusetts. We'll talk about what it means to be a feminist in the House and about taking on Donald Trump from the Women's March to impeachment. This episode of Next Left was produced and edited by Sophia steiner Eboy. Our executive producers are Frank Reynolds, Aaron O'Mara, and Katrina Vandenhuvel. Our theme music is Deli Run by Ava Luna, who you can check out at avalunagroup.com. Our logo was designed by Sinead Chung. If you're enjoying the show, please let us know by rating and reviewing us on iTunes and subscribing anywhere you get your podcasts.